Welcome back to the Has Been Hoops podcast. We've got a special guest. Uh, he covers the NBA draft, The Athletic. He hosts one of my favourite pods, the Game Theory podcast. Um, he's seen every player in the world that's worth seeing. And the favourite thing for Wertho and I, he sees the game through a different lens, which we love Wertho. Um, American born, but he's living here in Australia. Um, I shared a studio briefly with him uh, while we created some content for Tap Corp last year and loved the chats we had. So uh, we've always wanted to get him on. Uh, one of the bu- one of the best basketball brains going around, Sam Vecini. Welcome to the Has Been Hoops podcast. I, I put on a good show, I think, of being one of the good basketball brains. You know, you guys yeah. played. You guys know this shit better than I do. We, we we know it differently to what you do, which is which I think is why we why we love talking. And um, before we get into it, um, last time I saw you in person uh, when we in the midst of an NBA season, you were literally neck deep in your draft guide and you told me how much time and effort goes into that thing I had no idea but um yeah tell us a little bit about what that entails just putting that together yeah I mean it's it's a labor of love we'll go with that uh every year you know I think this year I saw you when I was writing the 2022 one so uh, this year I did the 2023 one I think has it been that long wow it's been okay. like a year man it sucks um but I think that I think I did like 130,000 words this year. Uh, do you know in-depth profiles of biographies and just where they've come from and what their growth has been in the game? Because I think too often people come up with this idea of just players being young is better, right? the key is getting better. Everybody's going to run their own race. Like Keegan Murray got to the NBA at 22. But what people don't recognize is that from every year, from the time he's been 18 onward, the kid has gotten drastically better every single season. So I think that getting to showcase that growth and where they are in the game, where they have maybe stagnated in some way. Have they gotten better in the last couple of years? I think is really important. And then, you know, you talk about strengths, you talk about weaknesses, you do the typical evaluation stuff and uh, you try to come up with a board that, you know, at least looks logically sound. <laughs> it's interesting. You, you lead me perfectly into the first question I had. And for, for a long time now, when I've done my very... I suppose, very brief scouting analysis. But when I'm looking at players and when I'm I'm putting training sessions together for the teams I've coached, we build our pillars around five things. They're, the, they're our five S's. I'd love to know how you would rate these qualities uh, in the players that you, from the most to the least important, maybe, in the, in the players that you scout. So the pillars we build our programs on are skill, speed, size, shooting and strategy i'll say them again for you skill speed size shooting and strategy mm. how when you're looking at a prospect what of those is most appealing to you i think that it depends in part on the league you're scouting for first and foremost let, let's go to the nba let, let's keep yeah. this nba based in terms of the nba for me right now and by strategy i assume you mean you mean feel for the game the way they game think the game, right. their processing ability like i think right now i would go skill and strategy are the two most important things uh yeah. having that ability to 
have real skill level and be able to process what you're doing on the court, I think are the two most important things in today's league. And look, all of these things are important. Like we see how important size is, right? Look at the level of guards that have really struggled over the course of the last few years. If you're smaller, it's really hard to stay on the court, especially in the playoffs right now. I think all of these things are incredibly important, except like, honestly, I think speed is like the clear number five to me in terms of importance. There's probably a, like a determinative level of size that you need to be on some level, unless you are Trey young, Darius Garland. But once you hit that threshold, like you're probably pretty okay. Size is better. You know, if you can have guys that are six foot eight out there, that'd be great. But you know, as long as you hit like a threshold of size, I think you're probably okay. Uh, Shooting is incredibly important. If you're going to be a uh, off ball player now, just because of the way teams guard you, you you can't, uh, you can't, have non-shooters out there they will just choose not to guard you 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 can't have reluctant shooters out there anymore even like pj tucker will shoot 36 percent from three but nobody cares if he shoots because he's not always going to take them so to me though i want guys who can play at a high level who can think the game at a high level with their skill level Uh, The way that they are able to impact the game in terms of their passing vision, in terms of seeing the passes that are available on the court, uh, in terms of being able to break down defenders and being able to create that middle penetration and then be able to hit that kick out, then be able to hit the kick out to the reversal up the wing, right? Like things move so quickly in the NBA. Things move so, so quickly at that level in terms of the way that shooting windows close the way that guys close out, like to me, I, I love, for instance, what Oklahoma city has done. Uh, they're the team that really stands out to me in this regard. And I think they've evaluated better than anybody in the last few years. Uh, the three things that I think that I've noticed that they look for are the intersection of three of your S's skill strategy and size. I think that those are the three things they look at. And, you know, Josh Giddy is a prime example of it. Jalen Williams is a prime example of it. Chet Holmgren, Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Not all these guys were, you know, guaranteed shooters coming into the NBA, but the intersection of those three things, I think, uh, is always a really, really good starting block. I think uh, the Denver Nuggets epitomize that exactly. Uh, And the thing that I noticed from the Nuggets was, their size was overwhelming come the finals. Yep. Uh, they just had the, the the very large wings that were able to guard. They had the shooters on the floor. And obviously when you have the centerpiece that is has the highest IQ out of anyone on the court, yep. I think that epitomized what OKC is trying to replicate in the same sort of what Denver's been able to do. Having been a scout for the last two years, character plays a huge <laughs> part in this as well. And, and, <laughs> It surprised me how deep they want you to dig to try and find out the character of a guy. Um, obviously, we've seen in the last draft that character had played a big part in who got drafted where. When you're going through your stuff, how deep do you go with the character analysis of a, of a player as well? I go deep where I think it is extremely necessary to go deep. If I get a good impression that the character for a kid is positive and that the kid is like a generally really good kid, I will feel pretty good about it at a certain level. And I won't dig as deep, 
But like, I'll tell you, like, you know, a person that you alluded to there by saying, like, as we saw in this draft in 2023 is Cam Whitmore, right? Cam Whitmore, I think, was a top five talent in this class, like undeniably in terms of athleticism, potential as a shot maker. He doesn't have the strategy portion, as Chris would lay out in terms of the processing speed yet, but he is like a Jalen Brown level athlete in terms of what he brings to the table with explosiveness and power combination. But he fell in this draft and I really dug deep to try and understand what happened there and try to understand. I dug deep beforehand uh, to try and understand why you would hear questionable things coming out of uh, circumstances. And what I ultimately came to believe was kind of similar to what I think Houston came to believe that I think it was a lot more situational than it was the kid himself. You know, the, the kid is a, you know, comes from like a military family. He is a little bit more low key. He's like a laid back dude. So when he'd show up to these, you know, workouts and everything, for teams, he would be very low key, but also very confident in himself. And if he doesn't really like, if he doesn't fuck with you, like he might not fuck with you. You know what I mean? Like, and like, he doesn't really sugarcoat. That was my impression of what I was told. And if you're an NBA team that could rub you the wrong way uh, in some cases. And I think in some cases it did. And then once you get past a certain point where you think he's not going to be available, like, you know, everyone thought he's going to the top 10, you get to 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, you know, especially 17, 18, 19. As you mentioned, teams really do want you to dive deep in terms of character and want to know the guys that they're drafting. So if they don't really have all of that in-depth, you know, analysis on a player in terms of character and in terms of what they know, it can be very difficult for them to pull the trigger on a risk like that. You know, for instance, I don't think anybody thinks that Brandon Pajemski is more talented than Cam Whitmore, but I would venture that Golden State thought there was no way that Cam Whitmore was getting to number 19. So they just didn't do, why would they do the in-depth like Intel? You only have so many resources. So I, I would venture that probably played a role. Before we we get into the next stars, and I want to talk a little bit about the next stars program here in the NBL, but Wertho and I had a chat. I think it was actually in our last pod, and we talked about some of the most successful male and female basketballers in the NBA and WNBA right now, coming from professional parents: Giddy Simmons, Alana mm. Smith, Shyla Hill. The list goes on. One of the observations we've made, and I'm interested if you've seen it or, or if you have an opinion, Australian junior teams always do exceptionally well. Um, I was a part of one that won a gold medal, but you know the whole group didn't go on as perhaps what we thought. But as juniors and as we walk around basketball stadiums on a Friday night and watch the best kids, they're great at running plays. They're not great at making plays. So to your point where you suggested mm. that skill is right at the very top, you know, the Australian culture 
sees that sometimes, in my opinion, as being selfish or showboating. And, and we almost take that out of the really talented kids and force them into a, force them into a system and do them a disservice. I, I, I just think we need more individual skill development coaches working with our really talented kids because as it is right now, unless you go to the COE which, or the NBA Global Academy, which is where they do highlight that, you really don't get that exposure and you seem to fall behind the curve. Have you noticed that or is that something that's just in my head? No, I think you are a hundred percent right. Like I think you could not be more accurate about that. There are a couple of things that I notice when I scout Australian players. The first one is I think they tend to play very upright. I think that they tend to play very up and down without a lot of bend through their lower half. And I think that that often leads to a circumstance where you're actually losing a little bit of your explosiveness, potentially, that ability to get in and out of the paint consistently. Uh, you know, thinking of guys like, you know, Josh Giddy, I think plays very upright. He's just a basketball savant and like an absolute genius. I thought Dante Exum played very upright. Uh, I think Dyson Daniels plays very upright. It, it, particularly these bigger guards that Australia tends to evaluate, I don't totally know what it is that's exactly being taught, but I think that it is a consistent thing that you see throughout, you know, development of these elite players. Uh, in terms of the idea of creativity, I mean, look, you guys have been in these systems much, much more than I have. You would understand what's being taught in terms of individualism and in terms of, uh, in terms of taking that creativity almost out of the game for those guys. I mean, is it really a circumstance that you guys think that you're just being drilled so hard into what the right play is every single time and making the right play, playing unselfishly, playing for your teammates? Like, do you think it's a circumstance where, you know, this is being drilled, creativity and individualism is being drilled out? I think there's a penalty with a lot of junior coaches for making mistakes. I, I love yeah. talented players who make the most flamboyant, crazy mistakes to try to understand what their ceiling is. We always, yeah. not we, <clears throat> I've always had this rule at whatever level I coach, I get the defensive end, you get the offensive end. Go, mm. go and explore. You know, don't make a selfish error and don't make a lazy error. But if you're trying to make the right play and throw it into the side wall, great. Yeah. Go and drill it and figure out what you're capable of doing, but but certainly explore that. But yeah. I, I just don't see that enough as I walk around because so many junior coaches, and it is one of my pet peeves, coach to win on Friday night, they coach for junior <laughs> championships and they don't see the big picture for the kids. Yeah. I mean, were I though, it's the not other, like you wanted to say something, yeah. Yeah, I think the other thing is, uh, having lived in the States for a number of years, is streetball plays a huge part of, having creativity and we don't mm -hmm. have that here in Australia. There's not the let's go play pickup at the local gym and, and yeah. you know, everything is so structured uh, and the pickup games are the opportunities to be able to try stuff and, and be able to explore what your, what sort of flavor you have on the court and what, what your ceiling is, as Chris would say of uh, your capabilities. Um, and I think my growth as a basketball player came more through doing the pickup runs in the gym mm. and going to play street ball and stuff like that, where it got me out of always trying to make the right play every single time. It's yeah. like, all right, this means nothing. So I can try this and 
I might have an old guy that might yell at me to pass the ball more every now and then, but <laughs> that's about it. Well, and you know, look, like in general, I think that high school coaches, like in the United States, tend to be on the side of what you're saying that like many Australian coaches are. Like they do tend to be, let's make the right decision, let's win the game, let's do this, let's do that. And then more AAU basketball will be a little bit more of like, hey, let's explore this a little bit. Let's let's try and see what you've got. Let's try and let you uh, understand what your limits are, understand what your ceiling is a little bit more. And, you know, I mean, it feels like that's a that's a thing that would be ripe for development in, in a lot of ways. You know, I think that a lot of Americans uh, bemoan the AAU system in a lot of ways. And I think there are downsides to it. Like particularly, I think I'm quite worried about the wear and tear that occurs on these kids that from such a young age playing 12 months a year, basically with basketball, uh, that feels like something that could, uh, you know, as we continue to study this and, you know, look 10 more years down the road, we see guys that break down a little bit earlier. Like I'm a little bit worried about that as much as anything, but I do think that there is, there are so many positives to that system as well, just in terms of getting these kids reps. You know, I was talking, you know, on my show about the biggest thing that you need to be as a point guard in the NBA when you enter the NBA is you need to be able to play. You need to be able to like know that you can get those reps from day one. Because if you are not good enough to play on the ball in the NBA and you are a point guard, you're just not going to get the reps and you're not going to keep developing. That's why I kind of think like if you're a point guard, there's real value to staying in school, frankly, like two or three, maybe even four years, unless you are someone like, you know, Trey Young, Darius Garland, LaMelo Ball, et cetera, et cetera, over the last few drafts who are just like hyper elite talents because it's an opportunity in a lot of cases to explore your gifts to just get the reps that you need. And I, I do think that, you know, in Australia, there's probably space for something like that to develop uh, in order to help that creativity. Again, you've led me perfectly into, uh, I want to start talking about the next stars, that the NBL yeah. does a wonderful thing with their next stars program. As I, my untrained eye looks through probably the, the eight, uh, names on this list that I'm going to get a short opinion from. There could potentially be four lottery picks here playing in the NBL next year, potentially. And you may disagree as you shake your head. I'm just going to assume I'm wrong. So um, I'm skeptical. <laughs> let, let, let's start. Let, let's start with the Aussie and, and let's start with the point guard. Taron Armstrong has fascinated me since I saw him compete against Dyson Daniels and Josh Giddy three years ago. He, he's had his years in Cal Baptist. Just literally picking up from your conversation about point guards getting reps, how do you see Taron Armstrong as a professional? So I, I love Taron. Not a next star, by the way, either. Like, weirdly. Like, they decided... Yeah, sorry, yeah, we'll put him in before we yeah. get to the next point. No, I, I love it. But I think Taron's really good. I think Taron's... I talked to Taron when he was a freshman at Cal Baptist, and I don't know if I've ever spoken to somebody who has the kind of understanding of ball screens that he did at that young of an age. I didn't talk to Giddy when he was that young. So like maybe Josh had it, like there are a few others that like could have had it, but I personally don't know if I've ever talked to somebody who is that smart in terms of the way that he's seeing the second and third level of the defense as a teenager. Now with Taryn, he needs to get stronger. 
He honestly probably just needs to get more explosive on some level and he needs to get better as a shooter. Like the, the skill level and the strength levels just need to really improve. But like he has stuff that you can't really teach. I don't think in terms of the way he sees the game, I, I am higher on Terran than what I think most people are, frankly, than yeah, I, yeah. what it seems like the next stars program is given the fact that they didn't take him like in the next stars program. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I still see him. I still see his upside as sneaking his way into the second round and, and finding an NBA roster as a, as a real flyer. Yeah. Has a real shot to do that. I think. Were they, did you want to get, you wanted to take a look? No, you're good. Okay. Um, Alex too is another Aussie. Uh, that signed for the Sydney Kings, and he decommitted from Gonzaga. Um, yeah. I, I want to I want to ask you later on the reason you think players, or perhaps the the suitableness. That's probably not a word from the NBL to the next stars to the G League, and why particular players might choose it. But Alex Tui, mm-hmm. in the end, uh, chose the NBL. Another guy that a lot of Australians think has NBA potential. A lot aren't, aren't so sure. Um, I sit in the I'm not so sure category, but I've yeah. seen him play for the Boomers. Uh, and just speaking through an NBA lens, let's keep these perspectives. Let's say you're looking at your draft guide in next yeah, year, yeah, the yeah. next couple of years. How do you see Alex Tui? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I've thought Alex Tui was like a three-year guy at Gonzaga, like w- had a real chance to play in the NBA at some point, uh, but would take some real development. Like he is, he is a guy that has a good-looking shot that, you know, you watch it, over and over again, like I did at Hoop Summit, and it just didn't fall as much as you want it to fall or you hope that it can fall. A little bit boxy as an athlete, like not super like flexible, it feels like, throughout his uh, athleticism. And and I think he's going to end up being more of like a combo like four or five as opposed to being like the three, four wing that like it seems to be. Um, Maybe he can change that. Maybe he can work through some of the athletic uh, you know, flexibility concerns, but I, I think he's going to be a really, like he'll be a good professional somewhere for sure. Oh, we lost Anstey. No, uh, no, oh, we, we dropped out there for a second, but, but I've got you back. Um, hey, uh, the one guy, and I, I, I did hear your last pod um, and I think you share a similar opinion to me on this next player, but I've been at arm's distance around this guy, not internally, but in the same room a few times and have done a couple of sneaky little workouts with him and really think he's an NBA athlete, think he's a genuine prospect, um, really, really good kid. Um, he's coming back from a snap to kill. He's Ariel Hutpoy. He's yeah. now 21 years old, so he's got a little bit more experience, but I just see him as someone that not many people are speaking about even here in Australia as an next star because he's been here so long. But for me, he's a genuine flyer at being a first-round draft pick. Yeah, I thought he looked really good by the end of the 2021-22 season, if I remember correctly. That was the season that he played. Um, I thought he looked really good by the end of it. Like, he was aggressive. He was active. I thought he was really uh, solid as a rim protector just in terms of his positioning. Uh, obviously, you know, the big thing with him coming up, I, I've seen him since he was like, he went to the combine the year before he signed in Australia. And like he, he was, he's been a star. Like he's been a guy that was on the radar for NBA scouts since he was like 17. And he was always very heavy was the issue. Like he was always like in that 290 pound range. And it felt like to me when he got to Australia, 
he did some incredible work on his frame and actually added a lot of the explosiveness that was missing from his game in a real way. Uh, he always had like this innate feel. He always had real touch uh, around the basket, particularly, but he was very below the rim when he was younger. And you watched him that year in uh, with the NBL before he tore his Achilles early last year. He started to play a lot more above the rim, it felt like. And you mix that with some of the natural tools he has in terms of feel and touch. It's like, oh, like this guy might be, I, I think he might be like a starting quality big in the NBL this year. And if you're doing that at 21, that says a lot to me because that's that's like really, really high level stuff. I um, was there when he tore his Achilles at the preseason tournament. And uh, he was the person that I was most high on going into that season. And mainly because... And something that I picked up from Chris when he used to talk about him going through the draft is, was he the best at getting from rim to rim? Like, mm. I felt like he made that a real purpose of his. Yeah. It's like, all right, if I'm going to deter a shot, block a shot, get a rebound, I'm also going to try and be the first person down the court. And yep. we talk about um, his big knock was his tank and his engine of what he was capable of doing. Uh, Dean Vickerman would say, like, I could play him for two or three minutes at that level, but that's as far as he got. That preseason, what he was looking at is more in the five to six minute range. <laughs> so the work that he'd been able to put in a quarter to be able to play, and he did play at a bit at a better pace than anyone else in the league as a center. Um, and so I'm I'm really looking forward to what he's going to come back as a more mature person. He's gone through a death in his family over the past year as well. Mm. Um, coming off this injury, I'm I'm super excited now with uh, JLA maybe down for the entire season. I think yeah. it gives him the perfect opportunity to play more minutes as well. And and the other thing I'll I'll share on uh, Ariel is that I was told he looked really really good when Melbourne United scrimmage the boomers as well uh just kind of down here in melbourne uh before some of their exhibition games here i, I was told he looked really really good there too he's, he's moving well now the next five guys i step out of this conversation and we, <laughs> we, we jump into your world sam yeah. and were though if, if you've got anything feel free to add but i'm just going to throw the names and, and the teams and perhaps even a little bit more but um We'll, we'll hand it over. So AJ Johnson's 18 years old. He signed with Illawarra. And some people, and, and Sam, I, I'm, I'm saying some people very randomly. And I know the NBA <laughs> will pick the highest spot they've ever seen them listed at. But some people have got him uh, listed as high as the 11th draft pick. How do you see AJ Johnson at the Illawarra Hawks? Were those shaking his head for anyone who doesn't watch this? I am not quite as high as that, I would say. He is somebody that has immense tools uh he you you get him in a transition fest you go oh wow like this guy's the best player on the court uh he can fly he can get up and down like he's moving he's finishing above the rim you know if he's getting in rhythm as a shooter like he can get going there like i i don't love the decision making in the half court right now i don't like he's not strong i, I think he's gonna have I think he's going to have a tough time in the NBL. I kind of do, to be honest, like the guys that I think have tended to succeed here are the guys that can come in and play a level defensively or like 
have the ability to execute a little bit in the half court in some manner. And I just worry whether or not he's going to be able to do that. I feel like this next guy, and again, I heard your pod discussing him and I was fascinated. I actually sat in the car when I got to where I was going. I enjoyed your commentary around Trenton Flowers and it sounded very similar to what you just said who signed for Adelaide, decommitted from Louisville. Again, some people have him high as 11, 12th pick in the draft, but it sounds like a similar story. I like AJ more than I like him, um, I would say. I think AJ could be like a late first round pick. I I think Trenton could do that. Like, I I think Trenton, you know, he's 6'8". He has the tools that you look for from like a big point forward. Uh, You know, he grew up as a point guard. And I think that like he maintained that mentality as he was younger. And you can see it in the way that he plays as he tries to like drive and will occasionally kick or drive and finish at the rim. I don't, I've heard that they want to play him at point guard. Uh, it's a, it's a bad idea. See, see, we're, we're, even to, just to jump in and we're all shaking your head and here's the problem with the next stars program, not the problem, the challenge for coaches and CJ Bruton was under a lot of pressure as a coach last year as the Adelaide head coach. And now he's got Mitch McCarron as a point guard. Mitch is good, by Trenton the way. Flowers, Trenton Flowers coming in who's going to want to play the point guard and and CJ needs to win. It's it's really, really hard to ultimately have success in the NBL with next stars who have a big role. And the best ones we've seen, Josh Giddy, LaMelo Ball, they didn't make the playoffs. They, they pulled out early. Yeah. And their season was done. You know, to, to make a run at this, for a coach like CJ and a team like Adelaide, to have a next star who, in all of our opinions, might be a little bit overrated, who needs a ball in his hands, that that's a recipe for disaster if not handled properly. Yeah. Um, what I would say is, look, I have not talked to CJ Bruton about this. I'm just kind of hearing things. Nor have I. Yeah. Um, I got the impression that it was more CJ that was pushing for him to play point. And the kid wanted to play point, obviously, but like – that was my impression. Um, now, whether or not that's right, we'll find out going forward. I, I think it's one of those things. It'll be an experiment early in the season. I, I think it'll get recognized pretty quickly that it's probably not going to work. Um, and he probably won't play a lot of point guard uh, this year. But then you get into a circumstance where like, okay, you've told the kid that he's going to play point guard. Uh, I, I look, I don't, I don't know if the next stars program told him that. Um, but like if, he is under the impression he's going to play point. There could be some disappointment there to me, like play him next to Mitch McCarron, let him crash the glass on the defensive end and grab and go on the break and, you know, try and create early offense that way, or let him be like a secondary outlet. If somebody cuts off Mitch, you know, in the backcourt, right? Like I think Mitch McCarron, you know, if the shot comes back with Mitch, that's obviously the big thing. Like he's really struggled to shoot it since he's been in Adelaide for whatever reason, but like, if the shot comes back, that's a guy that would be perfect for a young developing, like, you know, secondary ball handler, like Trenton flowers, I think, because he's so steady. He's so solid. And I'll tell you this too. Like the thing that's going to make Trenton flowers better at basketball is going against Mitch McCarron every day in practice, because I was courtside when Melbourne United played Adelaide with Josh Giddy. And that was when Mitch still played for, Battle or played for Melbourne United. 
he made Josh's life hell, <laughs> like defensively. He made it absolutely fucking miserable. And he picked him up in the backcourt like almost every time. And Josh plays very upright. Mitch gets really under your, uh, like under your shit. Like he makes it hard, man. And having to deal I'm with strong. that every day, he's strong as hell. Like he, that will make Trenton Flowers better. I'll say that. Whether or not he'll get good enough, I have my skepticism. But like I, I think that really, really I do not see that team having a lot of success if they run Trenton Flowers at point guard. He needs that. to play on a wing and he needs to learn how to move without the ball because yes. Mitch McCarron is the guy that can find him in those yes. situations. Uh, more so than him trying to run a play or, or whatnot. His his value at his size is to be uh, like those Denver Nugget wings, be able to move off the ball, be able to find find where to move um, because they do have a point guard that will be able to find them if they get in the right spots. And the other piece of it with Trenton, though, is that like the shot does not look great. I think he has okay touch, but like the way it comes out of his hand, like it doesn't get a lot of spin and rotation on the ball. I'm a little bit worried about how that looks whenever it comes to playing professionally, getting guys closing out on you quicker, very competitive environments. Like, I don't know. And like, I'll tell you this too. Like we talked about the background of, you know, and talked about like in terms of the character side, I don't know anything about Trenton Flowers character. I don't know if he's a good kid, bad kid, anything like that. I want to be very clear about that. But I will say the first thing that every NBA scout brings up to me about Trenton Flowers is he's been to four high schools. Four high schools. Went to Louisville, left Louisville early, and is now like on basically his sixth team in what, like, you know, it's a, months, it's a big red flag, like I think, for anyone who recruits. So he's going to be fascinating. Now, the person that fascinates me most and very similar to, well, not very similar to Ariel Hardporty, but the similarity is we have so many international next stars this year. Um, and the next three guys are all international. But Alexander Saar, he's an 18 year old big who signed for the Perth Wildcats. This is a kid who I am absolutely fascinated to watch because we haven't seen someone so young as a big step into the NBL and he doesn't have that level of physicality yet. But I'm, I'm fascinated to hear your thoughts and the ceiling that you project for Alexander Saar. Defensively, I think it's immense. I think his ceiling is enormous. He is seven foot one, has like a seven foot five wingspan. He can move. Like you watch him slide his feet on the perimeter with the French national team. Like you, you go back and you watch a few of those overtime elite games where they would play the Thompson twins. He would be the guy guarding Asar Thompson. And Asar Thompson is going to enter the NBA as one of the, I don't know, third, 25 best athletes in the league. Uh, maybe better than that, like 20 best athletes in the league. And Alex Sar made his life hard when he would play him. So I think he can do that from day one. He'll come in and he'll be able to defend. I think it like for 10 minutes a night. And the big thing is that Perth doesn't really need him for more than that. Like they have Keanu Pinder. They're probably, I think they'll probably bring in a four man. They still have one more import slot left if I remember correctly. Uh, So they'll probably go out and try and find another four man. And a four five. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So like I would imagine they're probably going to find one and he'll play 10 minutes a night and he'll be an aggressive defender that flies around and gives you something a little bit different than what Keanu does. And the, the thing that, the thing that I love about what he can bring 
in this league, particularly the NBL is a very ball screen heavy league comparatively to other, you know, international competitions outside of the NBA. They were a ton of ball screens. I think Alex R can really guard ball screens uh, in a way that, you know, some of the bigs in the NBL can sometimes struggle with. Um, the Lithuanian kid, Mantis Rubstevich. Nope. Tell me how to pronounce it. Mantis Rubstevicius. There you go. He's 21. He's from Lithuania. Louder, <laughs> Chris. <laughs> You're, you honestly, like, if you would have just gone with it, you'd have nailed it, man. Yeah, no, I was getting there. I was, I was circling my Estonian teammates in the times that I spent with the, all the Lithuanian and Latvian guys, but it, got, it was too far gone. Um, 21-year-old next star, um, potentially going to struggle at New Zealand as well. I, so, look, I, I think that these older guys that come in are probably a little bit more ready. Like, I think Montes is probably ready. I was told that, like, uh, Modi, uh, New Zealand's coach, like really was excited and like, it, you know, is excited to get Montes in there because he thinks that what he can bring is a value. Like he thinks he can step into a rotation role pretty quick. Um, what I would say is the, the shot is the big thing here for Montes. And if you look at his international youth level competitions, for Lithuania, you know, he played in a U16, a U19 World Cup and a U20 Euro. He hit 38% of his threes, 39% of his threes, looked really impactful as a shooter. You see the way the ball comes out of his hand. He looks like he should be a shooter, like truly. Right. If you look at his numbers in Lithuania and in, you know, EuroLeague and Euro Cup competition, he played Euro Cup last year uh like quite a bit. He did not shoot it like he shot 29% from three last year on 115 attempts. He shot 31% from three the year before on 120 attempts, 32% the year before on 130 attempts. So there's some sort of disconnect that's happening there. And I think that in general with how connected European defenses are, guys that are younger will tend to have lower shooting percentages over there than what they will in the NBA, in the NBL, I think that it's just a little bit easier uh, to get clean looks in general than it is in Europe. But uh, look, if he's a 34% three-point shooter, he's probably like a ninth man in the NBL. And if he's yeah. a uh, you know 38% three-point shooter, he might be like a pretty good sixth man. It, it's, it's all over the map, I think, for him. Like, I, I don't know what to expect. Before I ask you about this last kid, um... If you came up with those numbers off the top of your head, that's absolutely incredible. I really I, I hope didn't. you've got. I really hope you've got them on the screen in front of you, that because that was super impressive. I, I know. I knew what the numbers were off the top of my head for last year. I did not know what they were uh, the previous year. Uh, hey, the highest, the highest rated kid in most people's, or the highest rated next star in most people's minds is Bobby Clinton, who's a twenty-year-old Swedish kid who signed for the Cairns Taipans, which was broken who, on the Has Been Hoops podcast Twitter. Was it? There we go. We we did do that. We don't often get into news oh, breaking yeah. before they did break that one. Um, love your love your opinion on this kid. Yeah. So I've done a lot of work into Bobby. Um, I uh, actually kind of did his like draft announcement. Uh, reported that, and 
did it in like a big thing where I wrote about like how he could be an interesting 2023 or 2024 prospect. And he declared for the 2023 NBA draft. I think he kind of did like the mystery man thing where he only played, you know, a certain number of minutes at Wake Forest really played well at the end of the season and then kind of tried to ride that wave to, uh, you know, maybe top 35 guaranteed pick. Right. And from what I gather, like didn't really get the promise that they were hoping for. And also decided that Wake Forest wasn't really the spot. So he decided to come to the next stars program, which I think makes sense. Uh, I think that there's real, I think his style of play fits well uh, in the NBL because if you watch him at Wake, he was much more of like a pick and pop corner spacing three point shooter that is six foot 10, who has really good touch, has really good ability to gather his weight underneath them uh, off of like slight flare actions and things like that uh, for somebody that is that big and can occasionally like make some pretty solid passing reads and is like an okay rebounder. If you watch the Swedish tape where he played for the Swedish national team at youth levels, you'll see a guy who can like grab and go on the break and can make these like high, like live dribble passing reads and can knock down shots as well. And like, I think he averaged like 16, 10 and five or something for the Swedish national team at the U twenties in the summer of 2022. Uh, And if you talk to people at sunrise Christian, which is where he went for high school uh, in his last year, they'll tell you like this kid has a ceiling that is like immense just in terms of his, Uh, mobility in terms of his skill level being that big. The thing that worries me a little bit is the explosiveness. Uh, He's not, he doesn't have like a ton of pop. It felt like when I watched him at wake, Uh, didn't feel like he had like a ton of, he was, he, we all have different, like every NBA player has like a very different type of athleticism, right? Some guys are wildly explosive and don't know where all of their limbs are at once, right? (laughs) Some guys are incredibly uh, fluid and can get to their spots because they decelerate really well. Someone like Luka Doncic stands out in this regard, right? Like no one will call Luka one of the best athletes in the world, but he lives in the paint at the end of the day. So you can get by with a lot of different stuff. I worry about Bobby's strength and explosiveness kind of intersection a little bit, but the skill level is real for somebody that's six ten, And I think that, uh, Karen's, it will be really interesting to see what he can do. I think he has a lot of upside. I think before I move on to my, before we change. Hold hold on, on, Chris. I want to hear that. I do want to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think he's at the right club to like, the one thing I've noticed with Cairns is the power employment that Ford gives them. And yeah. uh, for Clintman, it wasn't an amicable split from Wake as well. His name got dragged through the mud, to say the least. <laughs> wild move by Steve Forbes. Like, tr- he, truly just a wild move. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think coming, if you are if you ever play overseas, you want to feel like you belong to a place. Yeah. Um, if I was a parent of a kid that was coming to a next stars program and I'd, I'd had a lens on the NBL, I think I'd want my kid to go to Cairns, mm. uh, to be coached under Ford. Yes. There'll be success and championships in Sydney. I think New Zealand have had a good, uh, 
stepping stone for the next stars program. But if I could just look at the coaches and who I'd want my kid to be coached by, I think Ford would be right up there as far as development, as far as making you feel good, making you feel comfortable. Um, I think that that is the real selling point for Cairns at the moment. I think for them to get someone as high of caliber of Clintman, I think they'll get the best out of him as well. Mm, yeah, that's, so, that's really so, interesting. So let me ask, to, to go back on that, let me pick up on that before I ask you, I'll ask the other kid later. Um, what is it, why is it that these kids do pick the NBL? You know, you mentioned Saar playing for the French national sure. team and we've just seen three French kids get drafted out of the, the French league and even if you've come from college, why don't these kids play in their home countries? Why do, why do athletes choose the NBL over the G League, over their own country, over college? Um, yeah, actually, I'll leave it at that. What are yeah. your thoughts in that regard? Yeah, so look, I mean, the NBL has more competition than it ever has uh, with the introduction of players being able to make money off of their name, image, and likeness rights, right? So you can go to college now and make X number of dollars uh, to go play in college. And frankly, that number uh, tends to be higher than what it is here in Australia. Now, the key is opportunity. The key is a style of play that is closer to the NBA in terms of translation, in terms of getting specific reps than what you get in some college programs. Like Alabama, I think, runs like a really open free-flowing offensive style of play where they run a ton of ball screens and they set you up for success that way, right? But like, you know, Kentucky previously has not done that, right? Like they run their, you know, dribble drive offense where they're going to have guys come off of curls into the mid-range and, you know, it's just like an offense that doesn't really look anything like an NBA offense, frankly. So it's, it's a little bit, of a mix, I think. And I think that where, you know, Liam Santa Maria, I think deserves a lot of credit for this first and foremost. And I want to shout him out particularly um, where Liam, I think deserves a lot of credit and where the next stars program in general deserves a lot of credit is pivoting, adjusting to more European players, uh, which I think was really, really smart. Uh, a lot of times European players will have a chance to make NIL money. Sometimes they won't though. Like it, it's a little bit of a hard uh, situation there because you have to do like overseas trips to make the money. And like, depending on the visa, like they may or may not be able to utilize like their rights in certain ways. Um, so I think that pivoting to European players is really, really smart. Um, in terms of, you know, the Americans they seem to be getting, you know, I think that, you know, AJ Johnson, uh, he went through a coaching change at Texas, right? Chris Beard uh, gets fired and Rodney Terry takes over. Trenton Flowers, it seems like, wasn't going to get a chance to play point guard at Louisville, maybe wants that opportunity at the NBL level, so decides to do it that way. I think that there will still be those chances to get certain, to get certain opportunistic situations for American kids. And I think that the style of play is a big reason why with the NBL. It is just generally, I think, a little bit closer to the NBA. Do you think when it comes to evaluating um, talent, the one thing I've sort of noticed with NBA execs is they held 
the NCAA in higher regard than anywhere <laughs> else. When I think of the Luca Trey Young, and they were like, "Well, we're not sure about his body of work." I mean, we're talking about an eighteen-year-old kid that's an MVP <laughs> of the Euroleague, and I was like, "How can you not think that that is better than anything yeah. that the college system has to offer?" Do you find that the the execs are slowly starting to change and seeing that the game is truly global? That Every league has its positives and negatives. I think if a kid comes to Australia, they know they're coming to a tough league where yeah. physically, if you if you come out of that looking okay, um, that stacks up well to an NBA game physicality-wise. Um, if you go to Europe, you know, the, the half-court IQ has to be on point. Otherwise, you don't get to play at the end of the day. Where do you see NBA execs now and how they evaluate talent coming out? It's just so funny. Like some of the conversations about Luca were so ridiculous. Like, yeah, he went into like Barcelona and played, but has he gone to, has he gone to East Lansing and played uh, in the big 10? Has he gone to Piscataway, New Jersey and played at the rack at Rutgers? Like, I mean, yeah, it's just like, what are we doing? Um, I think that as players have started to move globally more and move into different leagues from Overtime Elite, G League Ignite, the NBL, obviously, uh, as talent, uh, frankly, has gotten better internationally uh, over the course of the last decade and a half, realistically, in Europe and in places like that, to where scouts have to go over there. And scouts have scouts are being forced out of their comfort zone. I think it's a comfort zone thing more than anything. They know what college looks like, right? They know what, if a player does this in college, if he does, you know, X thing really well and he scores well and, you know, has the size, has this, has that, you can have a little bit better of an understanding in your mind because you've seen it before, right? It, it's, it's that incumbency effect in some regard. Whereas with the G League, for instance, like I've done like this study, like kind of on my show, where if you go back through the G League, and this speaks to Wortho's point, there are really only like two or three guys that you could say helped their stock by going to the Ignite. Uh, Marjan Beauchamp is certainly one of them. I think you could make a case for Dyson Daniels, but I think Dyson was seen as a lottery pick coming into that cycle. Um, but I'll, I'll hear out a case for Dyson going eighth. And then there was one more that I can't remember. And then there are like 12 or 13 other ones where the stock fell, right? Jalen Green's stock stayed the same. He was supposed to go to, he went to, right? But why would that be? Leonard Miller last year averaged in the last like 15 games of his G League season. I think it was something ridiculous, like 18 points, 11 rebounds, three assists versus only one and a half turnovers, shot 55% from the field as a teenager in the G League. And he goes 33rd overall. And it's just like, wait, we just saw him. Like he looked really good playing in NBA spacing. Like he looked really good, like playing uh, in an environment that is more applicable to the NBA than what college is. What, what, what am I missing here? And I, I think that you just kind of have to have to understand that there's a real incumbency effect in how scouts see things uh, and 
are able to translate things in their mind that they've seen before and thus they know how to do it again. I, I take that as um, they don't want to change their mind and they're fucking closed minded. <laughs> well, that's that's how I take it. And even yeah. when I was asked to look at kids in college and compare them, I'm like, well, it's like apples and oranges. Totally. Kids are playing versus kids versus kids playing versus men. Yep. Where's where's the stock hold up there? Anyway, I, well, it, and it's on a point like of a, frustration for me. And a totally differently spaced court as well. Like the college court, those college coaches, because you're playing against 19, 20, 21 year olds, they pack the paint. Like they are... They're like, you know what? We can get out to close out, get a late close out on shooters, right? Like we feel okay about that at the end yep. of the day. Um, we want to pack the paint. And you see with guys, for instance, like Scotty Barnes, Scotty Barnes like couldn't get into the paint in college because he's six foot nine. He's just like physically a large human being. There wasn't enough space for him in the paint with all of the other bodies around. So you see him get to the NBA and it's like, well, he can kind of get to the paint, like in a real tangible way. Like that's not his issue. His issue is he's going to have to shoot it on some level, but like it's, it's just a totally different, the court geometry is so different in college basketball that you just have to go in and understand it that like, you know, and the quality of play, the competition that you're going against obviously is just like totally different. You have to understand just what, what, what's going on with all of that, I think in a real way. On the, on the global scale, so the, the NBL now for a number of years has promoted its league as the second best in the world. When the boomers meddled, uh, the Australian basketball public now expects the boomers to meddle at every major event now, our opinion having been around it. And, and Joey Wright, with regard to the NBL, I think said it best where the NBL is not the second best league in the world, it's the second most appealing with regard to the boomers, we suffer a little bit here in Australia with geographic isolation where we get so caught up on how much better we're getting, we forget to look at how much better the rest of the world's getting. Yeah. So my question is twofold. On a global scale, where does the NBL sit with regard to other professional leagues around the world? And in turn, where do the boomers actually sit? Because I'll, I will, I'll argue strongly that we're every chance of winning a medal at any major event but we're also equally capable of finishing between fifth and eighth, having played yeah. really, really good basketball. Uh, how do you see both of those two comments? No, I think those are both hundred percent, right? Like I think about it, like in regard to, you know, we all just watched the Matildas, right. Uh, you know, and how excited we were that they made the semifinals and you know, I, I was as excited as anybody, like it was fantastic, but you, know, you compare it to the United States, for instance, and just how, quickly other countries have caught up to the United States in terms of infrastructure, in terms of uh, willingness to put real resources behind uh, women's soccer in, in a real tangible way. Uh, I think that it, it is, it is really interesting in terms of like where the idea of the Australian basketball marketplace fits because I agree with you. Like I talk to agents uh, every day of my life at this point now. And <laughs> there is real, I think that what you said in terms of, and I forget who you said, said it, uh, it's the second most appealing league in the world. 
I think that's like definitely right. If the money was similar to what it is in Europe, people would come here to play. Like people, it would be the second biggest league in the world, like unequivocally, I think. If you could get the money to where they're able to pay, you know, a million dollars, $2 million to keep certain guys around. Yes. A hundred percent. Like it'd be the second best league in the world, but like, it's not right now. Like the Euro league is the second best league in the world. Like, let's just be clear about that. And then I think the Spanish league is probably stronger. I think that, uh, you know, there are a few other leagues, like I'd probably look at, I think Spain is particularly the one though. Like the Adriatic league is interesting. It's just like kind of a different, it's like, constant bully ball in the Adriatic League in like a real yes, way. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, so like, you know, how do you compare like more of an up and down free flowing, you know, league to what the Adriatic League is? I, I, I don't know. I, you know, I think there are probably, there are probably a couple of players in the Adriatic League that are a little bit better. And I think that they also have a couple of teams like Mega and, um, Oh, what the fuck is the uh, uh, Pogradica um, team? It's like the student center in Pogradica that is like in the um, Adriatic League now that has like a bunch of younger players, but I digress. Um, it's, I would say it's in the top six or seven. It's like in that next tier after Spain, Euro League. I'd be interested to hear what you guys think of Euro Cup comparatively. I think Euro Cup's probably like in aggregate a stronger league. Um, yeah, I think the Euro Cups, the Euro leagues clearly have the advantage of drawing the yeah. best teams from national leagues. And so even in comparing to, as you mentioned, Spain, um, the top two or three teams in so many leagues are, would probably beat out top two or three teams, as you said, just given yeah. the quality of imports and top-level Europeans from other countries they can afford to bring in. I mean, back when I was playing in Russia, there were players on two and a half, three million US net dollars per year. We yeah. just get nowhere near that here. And the quality of import at the top level in Europe in a number of leagues is just so far greater yeah. than what ours is in Australia. But... Um, and, and again, but, I, but what I would say, well, I'm not saying that, that to disparage NBL, of course, but we do have a small population, but so does Lithuania. And so, yeah, anyway. But what I would say to that too is like talking to agents, if they could send their players here in terms of getting the money right and right. making it similar, they would send them here. Second most appealing league in the world. Let, let, let's leave it at that. I mean, single word answers. We're, we're, we're taking up, we've taken up a lot of your time, Sam. Um, <laughs> Which single word answers is going to be two names? Never going to Which next star will get drafted highest in next year's NBA draft? I will go Bobby Clinton. No, 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 no. That's that's a lie. Alex R. Alex R. The one Australian kid that we didn't mention on a, a yes or no answer. Uh, will Tyrese Proctor get drafted in the first round next year? Yes, and I think he will go potentially higher than any of the next stars that high that that could potentially make him top five to ten yeah i have him top ten i have him the lottery right now yeah yeah incredible sam Bassini. I, every time i listen Wait, to the game theory podcast one. mate I, oh Wait, sorry Chris, we got, we got i want to hear this one. Oh, okay we i'm trying to about it on the last podcast okay. 
Who's going to win Rookie of the Year? Chet Holgram or Webinyama? Or Scoot Henderson? Uh, part of this is like trying to figure out what the voters are going to value and like I don't What do you value? What do you what value? Do I... Don't fuck the voters. What do you yeah, value? Yeah, look, I think, I think there's a pretty good chance Chet wins it because I think that they're going to be a good team. And what that, were they celebrating? You literally said that on the last podcast. And I think that Vic is going to probably – look, I, I think they'll try and get Vic to 60 games because, like, I think Vic wants to win Rookie of the Year and, like, wants to be a thing. But, like, if it gets to a point where they're, like, totally out of it in San Antonio, they might not play him as many games, right? I reckon like, 40 games. He's going to be right around the 40 game mark. Well, look, like he played, you know, or he played for Osvell, not his pre-draft year, but the year before. And they were playing more of an NBA style schedule where they had like the potential to play 78 games or whatever. And, you know, he got nicked up quite a bit during that season and he's gotten stronger. He's gotten, you know, more physically capable and ready to play more of a heavy schedule. But you know, also you have to hope that Chet stays healthy. That was Chet's first significant injury, the one that occurred uh, in Seattle. So I think Chet's going to be healthy long term. You you listen to other players talk about Chet Holmgren. Like if you talk to other like like NBA level players about Chet, they all fucking love him. Like they think he like his mentality, his aggression, his. Uh, single-mindedness, like, on the game, his, all of it. Like, he is he is incredibly uh, well-respected and well-loved among other NBA players in a way that other high draft picks often struggle to gain that kind of level of respect before they've ever played a game in the NBA. Um, not to say Vic doesn't have that. Vic, Vic also, like, engenders a real level of respect, but, like, yeah, like I, I think Chet averages like, you know, 13, 9, and 3 blocks or something. And then I think Vic averages 15 and, you know, maybe 14 and 10 and a couple of blocks. And Chet will do it for a winner. And Wembenyama will be doing it for a team that's probably going to be one of the five worst in the league. Sam, mate, we uh, we feel smarter every time we listen to the Game Theory podcast. We, we're even smarter listening for having you on our own podcast. Anyone who listened to this, you go and check out the Game Theory podcast. It's one of our favourites. For us, mate, it's good to see your face, albeit on a screen for the first time in a while, but we really appreciate your time. Anytime, guys. Seriously, reach out. I'm always happy to come on.